What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. The eyes of the world, the eyes of the populations of the world are on you and we have your numbers. That lingering sense of fleas remains and we'll see what comes next. We need to make sure that what sits there on a piece of paper is actually going to turn into tangible, actionable projects on the ground that are going to make a difference to people's lives. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. So the government is unveiling more measures to help homeowners still trapped in unsafe and unsaleable flats more than four years after the Grenfell Tower fire. The Housing Secretary, Michael Gove, says that property developers must contribute to a £4 billion fund to fix dangerous cladding on low-rise apartment blocks by March or face new regulation that would force them to pay. Gove told Sky News it's a question of who should be liable. Should it be those with uh, the big bucks who have been responsible for the construction of these buildings or should it be individuals uh, who have worked hard in order to get a mortgage and who are now being saddled with costs for faults that were not their responsibility? Well, under Gove's plan, home builders who uh, earn more than £10 million will contribute to the costs of remediation work on buildings that measure between 11 and 18 metres in height. Well, Labour is calling for a one-off windfall tax on the North Sea oil and gas industry to combat surging energy bills. The party says that millions of households need help to absorb sharply rising bills this year, blaming the Conservatives for a decade of dither, delay and poor planning on Britain's energy sector. The party says that a one-off tax will be part of a package of measures that could reduce the expected energy price increase in April by about £200 for most households. OK, joining us now is Richard Holden, the Conservative MP for North West Durham, one of the Red Wall constituencies that was won by the Conservatives in 2019, if you recall. Richard, great to have you on the programme. But firstly, on cladding, why has it taken government years to come up with this plan after Grenfell four and a half years ago? People have been trapped in flats with deadly cladding, unable to sell or insure them. No, I know it's been a, a very difficult situation for so many people, um, you know, particularly younger homeowners across the country in these sorts of buildings. And I think that the truth behind it is there's been a, a massive discussion with industry and also a huge amount of issues as to who's actually responsible for, or for, for the situation that people find themselves in. And that's been, and that's been uh, you know, making everything else uh, uh, drag along on this. I am glad that the government, though, is actually, I'm glad particularly that the, uh, the height restriction is being changed as well on this because there's so many people in flats in that sort of medium size who were concerned and couldn't sell their properties, those 11 to 18 uh, metres as well. And I'm glad that this is actually going to look at and address those issues. It's something that we looked at at the Public Accounts Committee uh, last year. And I, um, and I hope that perhaps um, some of that work that we did with the National Audit Office looking into this um, will have also contributed towards uh, today's decision. It looks like uh, Michael Gove is trying to get developers to, to, to stump up for this, but it's still going to cost the taxpayer a, a lot of money, isn't it? Are you, are you happy with that? 
Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. Well, I think the truth is that this is that this is so much money, and it went on for such a long period of time. This uh, issues around cladding. Um, no, obviously, I'm not happy that um, taxpayers are going to have to uh, pay for it. But I also accept that there's a reality here, whereas it, we can't expect um, normal leaseholders to be picking up the the tabs. And also, if you just threw it all on the developers, they would just collapse and go bankrupt. So there has to be. A, um, a sensible middle way here, and, and I think Michael goes soon what he can to ensure that basically the taxpayer is in the best interest of taxpayers as well as in uh, the best interest of leaseholders. But uh, I don't think anybody's saying this is a uh, perfect situation, but we have to find a, a workable solution, and I think that's mm. what Michael has clearly been doing. Yeah, and this is an issue that, you know, by some accounts, d- difficult to estimate the number of people that it affects, but by s- most reckoning, it's it's around 600,000 people across the country. And of course, those people trapped in those flats will also be worried about the cost of living crisis, which is getting very real. Over the weekend, EDF said that the average bill for gas and electricity could jump 50% in April to an average of £2,000. It is a staggering sum the poorest households would be absolutely clobbered. What's the answer here? Well, I think the, the key thing is that there are, there are mitigations in there for the very poorest households. I think that's one important point to remember. And also for parts of the country like mine, where we have, uh, you know, we've, got, we've had snow on the ground over the weekend. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it is much colder. And in those areas, if you are a pensioner or you're on very low income, mm. you will get those cold weather payments. Uh, to help you um, through those uh, through the through the colder winter months, but I think you're absolutely right that you know, this is going to come down the tracks as a you know a real issue for a lot of families when uh, the cap is raised uh, in April. I think the, the truth on that though is that you know one of the reasons we've managed to keep bills down to date is that cap. So there's you know we have protected families so far because of that energy price cap, and I think there has <clears throat> I know the government is actively looking at further mitigations that could be made uh, for people. Um, there's a few ideas floating around, but I, I, I do think that you know, it, overall, we are looking, this is an international you know, issue around the price of gas at the moment. We can see that hostility, potential hostilities over in Ukraine have issues on this. There's obviously instability in other parts of the world which are but that's a dis- but it is also a lack of planning. The UK, for example, doesn't have enough gas storage. That is a domestic issue, nothing to do internationally. Well, well I mean, even so, you know, even the countries which have, uh, you know, uh, France and Germany have, uh, I think, just over 100 days. Well, that might see you through a, a short period, but these high gas prices have now been there for um, over six months and uh, are likely to be there. And I think uh, everybody's uh, sort of saying Bloomberg probably has better futures uh, ideas than I do on this, but <laughs> mind the for a good while to come. So, you know, even even with those limited supply, even with those supplies, you are going to be able to counteract a long-term increase in the price of gas, which is, I think, or certainly a medium-term one, which is what we're seeing that you know, prices, even though they've come off their peaks now, are still significantly higher, um, very significantly higher than we saw, particularly during the pandemic. Richard, isn't the government going to need to take much tougher action on this. You mentioned uh, poorer households and pensioners, but bills heading towards £2,000. There are going to be millions of people uh, who are just getting by who are really going to struggle with this. Doesn't the government need to do something more radical? What about uh, Labour's windfall tax on North Sea oil? Well, I think there's, I think there's also, I, I must say, on the oil side, we've seen 
prices again come off their peaks in recent weeks, but not suddenly similar decreases in the petrol pumps, which for constituency like mine, where everybody's very reliant on their cars, um, you know, there's, there's, when there are price decreases, they don't seem to be passed through as quickly as price increases are. So I think there, there could be more done in that space. I'm not sure about the exact um, response. I would, what I want to see is not immediate reaction to it. I want to see something which is sustainable. Um, I want to see something which we can, if we won't also be massively burdening a taxpayer with. Because I don't think that switching um, reliability from uh, the energy companies to the taxpayer is a, is, you know, we can do that when we're already facing these huge pressures uh, post-COVID. Um, mm. But I think you're right to say that we need to look at things which can properly, comprehensively be done to, to help. Uh, I'm not sure Labour's plan is, uh, is, is, is the right one or, or it's fully worked through because we have also got to remember that um, we've got uh, you know, dwindling domestic supplies of oil and gas. Um, we're now in big net yeah. importer. We weren't a few years ago. And I want to see um, as much as possible that we um, maximise, we, we don't leave ourselves reliant like we have with gas on foreign energy suppliers because yeah. we can't we can't do anything to them, uh, and um, <clears throat> and I want to ensure that as we make that slow transition to carbon zero, uh, that we have we ensure that as much as possible, uh, w- whatever it is that we're getting domestic supplies in there. Okay, I want to move on and talk about your private members' bill around pensions this afternoon, uh, urging changes to pensions auto enrolment. Now, this is actually a kind of Tory success story in some ways, auto enrolment for workers. But you want more to be done to drop the age from twenty-two to eighteen and scrap the ten thousand pound cap. How do you think it's going to help, and why has it taken so long? Because the auto enrolment plan, you know, started a decade ago. Yes, no, indeed. So, um, the, so I think the key thing we all want to see is people saving more for their own retirements. I think, and I think you're absolutely right that one of the big successes um, of um, the coalition and then Conservative governments uh, since 2010 has been um, this auto enrolment. We've seen the number of people auto enrolled into uh, private pension schemes increase from around 45% of the population to around three quarters of the population. And the people who are missing from that, and obviously you can opt out. Very few people do because actually I think most people recognise that secure, you know, everybody wants a safe, secure, healthy retirement. Um, but the people who do miss out on that at the moment are those earning under £10,000 per year in their individual job um, and also younger workers earning, uh, who are between 18 and 22. Uh, to me, it seems logical that particularly moving it down to 18 uh, is a sensible thing to do. Uh, if constituencies like mine, three quarters of people don't go to university uh, and they do start apprenticeships or jobs uh, at 18. So enabling those young people to save in those jobs seems really sensible and it would increase their pension pots at retirement for just a few pounds a week by around 25,000 quid, which is which will make a material difference. But the, the real change I want to see in the uh, medium term as well is also to get those people who are in part-time work or to enrol. And just very briefly, do you think the government is going to accept this? I think they, I, I think, in, I think they will over time. I think it's just, it's just a question of keeping up the pressure on that because part-time workers are the ones, you know, if you know somebody on a job earning thirty thousand a year is auto enrolled, but if you've got three part-time jobs where you earn nine thousand a year in each of them, uh, then you're not auto enrolled and you're not saving for your retirement. I think that's got a huge benefit to the individual and it's got a huge benefit to society as a whole. I think it's also a very sensible conservative thing to do, have people saving for themselves and for the future, in addition to their state pension, which will really help them in the long term.
Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics today. The government is warning that recent data shows almost all pregnant women admitted to hospital with coronavirus symptoms were unvaccinated. Ministers are launching a new campaign encouraging expectant mothers to get their first, second or booster jab. The advertising drive will put home the message that vaccines are safe and risks posed by COVID are far greater. And Buckingham Palace has revealed the lineup of events marking the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Celebrations for the monarch's 70 years on the throne begin properly in May with a special show in the grounds of Windsor Castle. An extra long bank holiday at the beginning of June will see four days of events with beacons lit across the UK, a service at St Paul's Cathedral and a concert at Buckingham Palace and also UK-wide street parties. Oh, something to look forward to. Well, the Foreign Secretary says she's prepared to unilaterally override parts of the post-Brexit agreement on Northern Ireland if EU talks fail. Liz Truss laid out her position in the Sunday Telegraph ahead of a key meeting with her EU counterpart on Thursday this week. Describing the UK position as a pragmatic compromise, Truss said she's willing to trigger Article 16 if needed. And on the subject of Brexit, one year on since the UK fully left the EU, we asked three key voices to assess just how we're doing. You can download that special programme via, via your usual podcast app or from the Bloomberg Westminster webpage. No, oh, is that a little plug for one of our special <laughs> programmes, Ian? Excellent. Uh, well, let's stick with the UK's post-Brexit future and pivot to the subject of farming and the management of the countryside. The Public Accounts Committee says that the government has not established any new measure uh, to any way to measure whether almost two and a half billion pounds of annual post-Brexit farm payments will actually provide value for money. Last week, the government announced further details of two new schemes for rewarding farmers in England for producing food sustainably while supporting nature's recovery. Well, let's discuss this now with Lisa Batty from the Wildlife, uh, the Wildlife Trust. She's head of conservation there. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us today. Just talk us through the basics of what the government has announced so far on this. Well, before I do that, I'm just going to take you back to how things operated under the EU. You mentioned there about the the payments to farmers. Farmers were encouraged um, and rewarded for the amount of land they farmed. 
And over decades, this has encouraged the loss of our hedgerows, our ponds, our field margins, as farmers really look to get as much as they possibly could out of the land. Um, what last week's announcement has done um, has the opportunity to reset the scales. It is in looking to encourage um, farmers to restore work with nature and recover our degraded landscape. So it really is a huge opportunity. It talks of great ambition. It talks of radical change. But we are concerned that there is a lack of detail there in what's mm. actually going to come next. Surely food security, though, is, is also a very important issue for the UK. About half the food on people's plates in Britain is imported from abroad and, you know, in a changing world, domestic food supplies are very important too. Absolutely. And this isn't about taking productive land out of um, production. Um, This is about farmers working with nature. So it's about taking the least productive parts of their, uh, their, their farmland, their field margins, um, restoring their hedgerows and ensuring that we don't have agricultural runoff into our waterways. If they join up all of the sort of disparate aspects of, of their, their landscape, then we'll have wildlife corridors and that will enable us to see the return of um, farmland birds, barn owls, corn buntings and curlew to name but a few. But it's it's not about jeopardising mm. our food security. It's about working with nature and helping us to tackle the ecological crisis that we face. There's been plenty of rhetoric about the uh, the ambition of the plans, it, and it it all sounds it all sounds like good stuff. What 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 are your worries about it really? Do you think it doesn't go far enough, or is it just are we just being too slow in getting there? I think I think there's a bit of both. Um, at the moment, it's words. It's it's very good words, but. Then when you sort of scratch beneath the surface and you say, well, how is this going to work in practice? How does um, a farmer actually, you know, ensure they're eligible for the funding? Where do they go and get the guidance needed um, to check that? And, And what are they actually going to be paid for? What are they going to be rewarded for? How can they start planning for the future? The scheme is set to roll out in just two years. So again, there is a concern that unless we move quickly, um, we're not going to be ready in two years. And at the end of the day, organisations like the Wildlife Trust and farmers need to know what's coming so that we can plan accordingly. Um, and that farmers have that, that real certainty to really grasp the, the opportunities ahead of them. There are some um, farmers who are trying to put some of this policy to the test, aren't there? I mean, what have they found so far? I mean, for example, Norfolk, I see they're trying to kind of implement some of this sort of post-Brexit policy and, and kind of new start for the UK. Yeah, absolutely. There are there are farmers who are already working with nature. Um, I think what we've got to ensure, though, is that all farmers are because when we look at the losses that we've faced, you know, we've lost something like 90% of our lowland meadows. Only 14% of our rivers are in good ecological status. Um, it means that we need a whole scale shift. And it's, 
it's you know it's not even just about the land because what we do on the land runs off into our waterways which ultimately ends up in the sea we are facing an ecological and a climate crisis and time's running out if we're to meet government's ambition to put 30 percent of land and sea in recovery by 2030 then we've really got to act really quite quicker much quicker than we are at present if we if this if this all comes off how ambitious is this can you sort of compare to other things around the world will this be a real step change that that the uk is actually taking it will the the government wants to be a world leader um and in order to do so they've got to have a world leading approach to food farming um and more the agricultural act of 2020 embedded um, the principle of public money for public good. And this really does present a huge opportunity to, to act on that and put it into practice. But we're concerned that um, it's, it's, a risk, it's at risk of not going ahead and that the detail isn't there to get it up and running. We, we feel that if we don't act now, mm. it really will be an opportunity wasted. And what about the money? Eight hundred million pounds is the sort of price tag, um, according to estimates of of the landscape recovery scheme. How does that measure up in terms of funding for something so transformative? It's important to bear in mind the direction of travel that we're going in, and the final point I was going to make is mm. not so much about whether this is better than what's gone before it's about whether or not it tackles that climate and ecological crisis if we worry about comparing it to what's gone before or Mm. levels of funding um, then we run the risk of getting caught in that detail ourselves the real measure will be whether or not it puts nature into recovery do you think that uh, farmers are are ready to change the way they farm? They've been for, for decades. They've been told they must produce as much food as possible. That's what all the subsidies have pushed them into. Do you think many of them are ready to spend their time uh, fostering nature? It's 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 quite different to, to to a lot of the work, isn't it? It is, but I think there is an appetite there. I think um, anybody who works with the land works with the natural environment, works out at sea, recognises the changes that they see in their day-to-day lives. You know, they are the people who are out there who are witnessing firsthand the effects of climate change. Um, You know, we also work with fishermen and they're the first to report on the changing in sightings that they see out at sea. Farmers are exactly the same. You know, they're the ones getting their hands dirty. And it means that they see the opportunities ahead of them. And I think um, done in the right way, providing the right certainty to farmers with the detail, with the guidance, um, will reassure them that this is the way of the future for both um, a productive Mm. um, farming infrastructure and returns on our land. Just lastly, your thoughts on how this fits with, again, another sort of big ambition from the government, which is to deliver on, on green pledges, on a net zero economy. How does, how does that fit in in terms of cutting CO2 emissions? That is the big question. And that's where we need to take a step out from both 
farming, uh, food production at sea, we need to think about how we plan our landscape, both with road infrastructure and development. You know, we can't deal with any of these um, industries, any of these sectors in isolation without thinking about the bigger climate crisis. Mm. We can't try and reach net zero without looking at the mix. Yes, trade-offs will have to be made, but we need to plan our natural environment with our built and developed um, alongside our food production. To do any in isolation would be foolhardy. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.